Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate kicks off our 12th season with Tony Plews, author of Walk a Lonely Street, Elvis Presley, Country Music, and the True Story of Heartbreak Hotel. They talk Colonel Tom Parker, Hank Snow, the songwriting team behind Elvis's first number one hit, and the murder mystery behind the song. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Tony Plews, author of Walk a Lonely Street, Elvis Presley, Country Music, and the True Story of Heartbreak Hotel. Tony, welcome. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm a, a big fan of the podcast, so it's, okay. it's a real honor. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. I think you're the first guest that's ever said that on the air, at least. Um, <laughs> The book is a real treat. This, you know, I, I got my hands on it and I'm like, whoa, this is a tome and it's all about one song. And then and then I get in there and it's these short vignettes. It's very novelistically written. And I just race through the whole thing compulsively. It, it's it's a delightful read. And it's a really unique to, unique take on Elvis Presley, Tom Parker, and especially Heartbreak Hotel. What drew you to this topic, and how did you figure out that that was the way to tell the story? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it started as an online conversation on an Elvis message board about 10 years ago. Uh, and, you know, when you've been an Elvis fan and a music fan for a long time, you think you know the answers to questions like, how did Heartbreak Hotel come about? And the long-established legend of how it was written. But when I joined this online conversation, people were saying, you know, this isn't necessarily the true story. There are so many unanswered questions. And I just decided that I wanted to understand as much as possible I, as I could 
and to try and establish what really did happen with this story. So I just picked up a pen, sat down at a keyboard and started to investigate. And 10 years later, the book was complete and, and published. It, it was just a, a challenge. Uh, I, as I say, I'm, I'm a big, big Elvis fan, big music fan in general, big Roots music fan. And uh, I just wanted to get to the bottom of it and decided to keep knocking on doors and calling people up and digging through archives until I had the answers that I wanted. With regard to the format of the book, well, that came pretty quickly. Um, and I was largely inspired by the lyrics of the song, uh, If You've Got a Tale to Tell. Uh, that became my my mantra, and I decided that I would picture myself as the barman in the Heartbreak Hotel, listening to all of these broken-hearted lovers telling their stories. Uh, my mother used to say that I was uh, a, a hopeless romantic, uh, and I was always looking for the, the happy ending or the or, or the, the the moral in the story. Uh, and I just loved the idea of assembling all of these tiny stories. Uh, which is the sort of thing, you know, as a guy who occasionally visits a pub or sits down with a friend, uh, I would sit there and, you know, we'd exchange stories or great stories or jokes or whatever. And I wanted to have a whole book full of little stories that added up and told a bigger story. So that's my uh, long answer to your short question, Nick. And I think it was a, a really brilliant format. At first, it was sort of off-putting because I'd never seen a book quite like this, but I found it was a great way to do two things at once. You, you zero in on the genesis of this one song, which is really an anomalous song. I mean, as much as we take it for granted as this is Elvis's first huge number one hit, this is the song the Beatles heard playing out the windows in Liverpool. You know, this is the song that went number one country, number one R&B, number one pop. This is the song, you know, Elvis played on that Sullivan show, et cetera, et cetera, on the Tommy Dorsey show. But it's really a weird song. It's not published by Hill and Range, which otherwise had a monopoly on his songwriting, or his mm. not songwriting, but the songs he performed throughout his mm. career with, you know, brief exceptions when he was working with Chips Moment and, and a, a few other instances where he insisted on doing a song. But for the most part, they had their fingers in every piece of pie sliced mm. off the, you know, Elvis cake. <clears throat> It's a really weird song. It's a song Sam Phillips hated. It, it's, you know, if you've ever tried to play it as a, in a band, I mean, just listening to it, I always thought of it as a, as a rocker by Elvis. But if you try to play it as a musician, this is not a rock song. <laughs> this is a very no, weird... No, no, far it, it, It's a bizarre song. And, and when you look at it, you know, people tend to ignore the fact that Elvis was an artist, uh, a man with a brain, really, which, you know, he genuinely was. But what, what kind of A&R was he doing in his head? when he decided this was the song he wanted to launch his international career with. Um, it's it's just, in many ways, the worst possible song, but it, it tapped into something uh, for this post-war generation in which millions and millions of people related to it. And, uh, well, the rest is history, I guess. But it's it's a bizarre song. You're quite right. There is no category for this song at all. Yeah, and, you know, Elvis is credited as a co-writer, but that was clearly sort of the old Al Jolson trick and put my name on there and, and cut me in on the royalties and you'll get a hit version. Therefore you'll make a lot more money than you would otherwise. But the two name songwriters, Mayborn Axton and Tommy Durden, they're really not known for any other hit songs. They they wrote other songs both together and separately, mm. but neither of them ever had a hit. And, mm. and yeah. then there's the involvement of Glenn Reeves doing the demo that transforms Tommy Durden's version into the makings of what Elvis did. Mm. Yeah, you're quite right. It's it's one of those things where 
certain things come together at a certain time with certain people and magic is made. And then you try and recreate that magic in other places and it just doesn't happen. It, it's the lightning in the bottle scenario. Um, and certainly Glenn Reeves, uh, who was a very gifted man, you know, uh, sang beautifully, performed well, uh, was a great DJ in his day. Um, and he certainly had a hand in, in the arrangement of this, you know, on my um, iTunes listing. I, I'm quite pedantic about writing in composers and arrangers. Um, and certainly with regard to the demo version uh, that we heard for the first time about 15, 20 years ago, that's, um, that's on my iTunes is listed as arranged by May Boren Axton and Glenn Reeves. He certainly had a, a big hand in that. And in some ways, it's a great shame that as far as we know, he didn't benefit from it at all financially or in any way other than becoming, as I mentioned in the book, the most notorious bit part player in rock history after Pete Best, really. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a heavy fate to be one of those guys that's there for the <laughs> for the greatest. But another thing in the book that that sort of threw me off at first, but when I figured out what you were doing, I really came to love it. You start the book at Appomattox with mm. Abe Lincoln and Dixie. Tell mm. us about that decision and why you went back to that point and, and, and also how you picked the end point that you chose. Okay. That's a, a good a good question again. Um uh I don't know, or certainly didn't know that much about country and Western music. Uh, I, I think I've, I've heard this before on, on other podcasts where people say the blues is the cool side of rock and roll history. Uh, um, you, you had a, a great interview a long time ago about Brian Jones and how Jones's vision of what rock and roll should be was tended to skew rock and roll history and i fell for that the idea that blues was the place to go but I, i've really uh, fallen in love with country and western and folk music over these past 10 years or so and i decided to really deep deeply dive in when i was investigating this book and i just kept taking one step back saying well what inspired that and what inspired that and what inspired that and when I came to the point in the story where I read this fantastic um, little vignette, again, to use your word, uh, whereby on the, the very end of the Civil War, uh, Lincoln asked the band outside the White House to play Dixie, which, of course, is a very controversial song. And is it a black song? Is it a white song? Is it a northern song? Is it a southern song? There's a lot of things going on in the background of that song. And I thought, what a, what a fantastic place to begin this this notion of music of the people to bring the people together uh black song white song uh, mixing it all up and this just seemed a perfect place to start and when i started further investigating and finding that colonel parker was there at the same time um yeah you have to read the book to understand that not properly but <laughs> all of these things kind of made sense to me and one of the key things of the book was i, I love the idea of connections and cycles and there's nothing new under the sun so a whole bunch of stuff started coming together here uh and when i eventually decided and it was a very quick decision i'll, I'll call the three parts of the book uh dixie glory and trials which if you know Presley's career, you'll know all the three general titles given to the segments of the American trilogy uh, anthem from the 1970s. And it all just fitted in. Uh, but it, it worked for me to go right back to the beginning of the story to understand how in the old days, nobody owned songs. 
how they were passed around, how people uh, took one song and turned it into another song or took lyrics from one song and, and no one cared. No one minded. And I love that. I really, really love that. Um, and so it just became the obvious place to start. And when I discovered that that precise date was also the precise date which started off Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender, the day after the Civil War ended, uh, it just fitted perfectly. It was hand in glove and it was set in stone from that point forward. Perfect. Let's hear the first demo of Heartbreak Hotel. This is by Tommy Durden, who's, by all accounts, at least the lead composer. We'll talk about Mayborn and Axton and what her contribution was, but here's Tommy Durden, Durden doing Heartbreak Hotel. I found a new place to dwell Down at the end of Lonely Street Heartbreak Hotel And I'm so, so lonely, baby Well, I'm so lonely Till I'm so lonely, I could die. And that's the raw materials that Elvis would form Heartbreak Hotel out of. That's Tommy Durden's version. And when you hear that version, you can really tell this is a country song. This is this is written by a country songwriter going in a country direction. And I thought your choice, you know, starting with Appomattox and Dixie was brilliant, both for the the connection to the American trilogy that you talked about. But also because that's where song publishing starts, or right around that time. You, you know, you talk about, and from a creative standpoint, I agree. Yeah, songs songs are ideas. Ideas should be shared. People should be free to rework other people's ideas. But around that time, Stephen Foster, America's first great songwriter, mm -hmm. dies in utter penury. And people are so outraged by this that copyright laws are written that really make songwriters to this day still the – best earners in the music business it, you know publishing and songwriting are the, that's where the money is even more so publishing than songwriting and this book is as much as there's three detective stories in this book and I, I, I just hats off on your patience and, and doggedness in solving all three of these mysteries but you've got the who wrote heartbreak hotel and how did it become the version we know. Then there's what's the story of Heartbreak Hotel? We'll get to that in a minute. You know, who was it that walked down a lonely street and why the story we've heard probably isn't exactly true. And then the third mystery is why on earth was this song not published by Hill and Range? Because Colonel Tom Parker and the Aberbach brothers who ran Hill and Range were absolutely tight. I mean, he ran off Lieber and Solar just for hinting at doing, you know, make it a potentially great musical movie with Elia Kazan mm. and, and, and Elvis and others because he had mm. to control the publishing. And mm. yet in this one instance, this one song that is absolutely by itself worth a fortune and everybody knew it would be going in. I mean, it was either going to be worth a fortune or the whole Elvis experiment was not going to work because this was Elvis's mm. first RCA single. It had to be a bit massive hit. You know, so you solved that mystery. How on earth did Colonel Parker let this song get published by somebody other than Hill and Range. And it kind of becomes clear, it wasn't that he let it get away, he chose to take it away mm. from Hill and Range. Mm. Okay. Well, I must stress of the three of the three mysteries that you mentioned, um, this is the one which is more my opinion than a, an absolute fact. The other bits and pieces really are, are as near to fact as damn it. But th this is my suggestion, uh, which I worked backwards. Um, 
And, and you're right, it, it is an absolute mystery why, why, or was a mystery, why Parker would allow the publishing to get away. I hadn't understood when I was a younger music fan how important the publishing was. I can recall buying books and they, they would go off into chapters about the importance of publishing and I would just doze, really. I, I had no interest in that whatsoever. But when you realise the importance that the publishing has on a career like um, Elvis Presley's, or you go into the intricacies of the Beatles publishing, you can begin to see why the publishing is, is so important in popular music in particular. Uh, which is why, again, I decided to go through the formation of ASCAP, the formation of BMI in the book. But whenever I did that, <clears throat> rather than just talk about a company or a corporation, I would always try and attach it to a person, someone that you could take an interest in, um, uh, Irving Berlin or, or, or what have you, because that made it more interesting to me rather than just writing down facts and figures and motions that were passed in various boardrooms. But once you understand that the publishing is almost everything, then you begin to understand the, the key to, to how Heartbreak Hotel was given not to Hill and Range, but was given to the smallest and least impressive and least successful um, publishing company in in Nashville, for whom Buddy Killen worked really. Um, I don't know, do, you want, do you want to talk about that more? Do you want me to go into yeah, why? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah. Buddy Killen is somebody okay. I had sure. never heard of, never given a moment's thought, and he's a fascinating mm. character. He played bass for Hank Williams, yeah. and and at the end of you know, his career, he ends up selling tree publishing for yeah. tens of millions of dollars to CBS in the yeah. 1980s. It's it's an incredible story. And, you know, mm. he made more money off Heartbreak Hotel than Glenn Reeves. Glenn Reeves made nothing. <laughs> you know, nothing. Glenn Reeves yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 you know, does the they, arrangement. They, Buddy Killen yeah. has his thing handed to him and makes a fortune. Yeah. Well, Buddy Killen um, was... I think just a nice guy, really, to, to begin with. And I think he worked very hard. But as you say, he he, um, he really uh, was an administrator, in, in this case, and a networker. But um, the, the, the key for me was that there'd always been this story, which I, we, we will, I know, talk in more depth later, about how Heartbreak Hotel came about. And in May Axon's story, she always said, you know, I just happened to bump into Buddy Killen. Uh, and he said... Uh, have you got a song for me? Because my publishing company is really sinking fast. And she said, yeah, how, how would you like Elvis Presley's first RCA record? And it had always been assumed in the way that May told the story that this conversation took place sometime uh, in late 1955, right about the time Elvis first heard the song in Nashville. But when you read Buddy Killen's memoirs, that isn't exactly the story that Buddy gives because he has a wonderful aid memoir to his story. You know, sometimes you can read stories and someone will drop something in. You think, okay, well, now I know exactly when that happened. And Buddy's very clear on this. You know, May and he talked about Elvis's first RCA single right back in uh, the summer of 1955 when Elvis played the Peabody Stadium in Florida. Uh, yeah, Florida. Um, and you think, well, hang on, how can they be... Um, how can they be talking about Heartbreak Hotel uh, before the song is even written? Um, and, and the key to this is that they weren't talking about Heartbreak Hotel. They were talking about 
Elvis Presley's first RCA record, whatever that happened to be. Uh, and so I, I took that as, for some reason, there had been a discussion about Elvis Presley's first record in the summer of 1955, long before Heart Record Hotel was written. And as I backtracked through the Elvis story, through Colonel Tom Parker's story, there was this one particular moment where Tom Parker absolutely lost his temper in every sense of the word with the Appleback brothers who were very much on his side. You know, they were a team. They'd worked together with Eddie Arnold, with Hank Snow, but um, the Appleback brothers cut Parker out of a deal at a point when he really needed their support. And it, it just made sense to me that this all happened in the space of one weekend. So I figured that Parker had been cut out of the deal by the Aberbacks on one day. And then the next day he thought, how can I get my own back? And he decided that even if the Aberbacks were going to be part of the Elvis story, and the Aberbacks were always going to be part of the Elvis story um, because of their history with Parker, he was going to make sure that he poked them in the eye somewhere down the line. And there was nothing they cared more about than, than songs. So he found the smallest, most failing publishing company in Nashville and offered the song to them. And I have no doubt, as I make it clear in the book, that um, Tom Parker received his cut somewhere down the line. <laughs> it would definitely be in character for Tom Parker to do that. But let's go ahead and hear the Glenn Reeves demo of Heartbreak Hotel. And we've heard the Tommy Durden version. And let's hear the way Glenn Reeves transformed it. I found a new place to dwell Down at the end of Lonely Street Heartbreak Hotel And I'm so, so lonely, baby Well, I'm so lonely Well, I'm so lonely I could die And that was Glenn Reeves' demo of Heartbreak Hotel the second demo of that song, and the one Elvis heard, the one that Mayborn Axon played for Elvis. And to me, this is where it really has the ring of truth you're telling of this story, because we know that Elvis's version of Hound Dog derives from his hearing a Las Vegas show band, Freddie Bell and the Bellboys, doing a dramatically different arrangement of, of Hound Dog than Big Mama Thornton and Lieber and Stoller had done in the early 50s. So we know Elvis was very attuned if he liked an arrangement, he would cop it. And and mm. he very much, to me, it's clear he modeled his version on the Glenn Reeves demo. And he added a lot. The alchemy, I mean, the difference, there's a big difference between the Glenn Reeves version and the Elvis version. Mm. Elvis obviously brought a lot to the table, but he's clearly working off the model of that Glenn Reeves version. But to go back to Tom Parker and Buddy Killen, the, the Averbacks had done a deal to do an Elvis songbook, collecting, I guess, the Sun singles into a songbook. And they mm. cut Parker out of that deal. And the way I think you really put together, you know, I've read Alana Nash's book on Tom Parker, and I've read Guralnik's books on Elvis, covered Tom Parker extensively. But the way you tell Tom Parker's story in these series of vignettes that go all the way back to his, his early youth, <laughs> and the way that you describe him putting the deal to get Elvis, he... he brings these players together and RCA doesn't really want to spend the money. And, and you, you established that he had a bad track record of record of making recommendations to RCA. He recommended Slim Whitman to them who later becomes a superstar, but totally flopped with them. He recommended mm -hmm. Tommy Sands, who's today most famous as Nancy Sinatra's first ex-husband. Um, <laughs> and, and a woman whose name I'm blanking on, but you know, he had, he had, he had, 
gone to Steve Schultz at RCA three times and made these recommendations, and they'd all whiffed. And and Elvis, you know, Sam Phillips wanted a lot of money for Elvis. You know, Columbia Records and others had already walked away because of the price tag. Atlantic, you know, had, had offered a much lower bid than what Sam Phillips wanted. But Parker was moving multiple pieces in place to make this all happen, and they all had to come together at once. The the Aberbacks were the the financiers essentially of this deal, even though ultimately Elvis would pay it back out of his royalties. There was no mm. guarantee there were going to be Elvis royalties. You know, if he came out. Mm the gate and flop like Slim Whitman. And so the whole mm. deal hinges on all these moving parts coming together perfectly. So when mm. the Auberbach screw him out of that songbook, mm. it threatened, it wasn't just that songbook. It was that it threatened that whole deal. And, and, um, you know, and it's also one of the few instances where Colonel Parker plays an A and R role in Elvis's career. You know, his promise was always to stay out of the music and and Elvis is the one who picked the song. Like Mayborn Axon had a different song that she had written that she thought mm. would be the hit, and Elvis wasn't even interested. This was the second song mm. she gave him. So it's it's a total fluke that Parker picked her, and that she mm. actually, for the one time in her life, had a song that Elvis would want to do. Just <laughs> you know, yeah, no, you're right. It, it is again this this perfect coming together, which again was something that that appealed to me in in the story. Um, I should stress that uh, my, my book leans heavily on Alana and Peter's books about Elvis and the Colonel. But uh, what I tried to do when I approached this was to extend uh, my, uh, my my palette, as it were. And I read books like Buddy Killen's book and also the excellent book, um, if somewhat one-sided, on the other Black Brothers called Restless Giant, uh, where they tracked all the meetings that they'd had with Parker during this period. And you're right, Parker in his own way, was, was a genius, an absolute genius. And the way he would plan things that n nobody else could possibly have done that. I, I'm quite sure. I think, again, uh, in your uh, in interview with uh, Peter Goralnik that I heard this morning, he was describing Parker as a creative genius. And, it, and there is truth in that. Uh, obviously, I, I don't think he'd have made a very good album, but, but Parker uh, <laughs> was, was, a, was, a, was a great thinker in his own right uh, and was well ahead of the game. Um, and his methods were crude in some ways, but he was so, so clever in putting deals together. Um, you know, I wish there'd been somebody else in Elvis's career who had that creative sounding board as well as the financial and business sounding board that Parker provided. But but there wasn't, well, at least when there was, then Parker made sure that they disappeared very quickly. Uh, but Parker should not be underestimated. You know, he, he should not be seen as a, what we'd call in the UK, a pantomime villain. He, um, he was a clever, clever man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the book really brings it home. And yeah, and you always acknowledge your sources when you go through each vignette, you know, has a little footnote at the beginning and that it's led me on a lot of rabbit trails. Uh, really enjoyed it. <laughs> and let's talk about that, that other mystery about Heartbreak Hotel. You know, the, the song has that I, you know, Lonely Street image. And it's always been known that they got that from the newspaper. And it was supposedly a suicide. And it was supposedly on the front page of the Miami Herald around the time they wrote the song. You know, someone who killed, killed themselves and said, I walk a lonely street. But it turns out it was a very different story. And and mm. I don't want to spoil all the surprises in the book, but um, I'm game to spoil as much as you'll let me. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. but, but, but you trace it to, to this guy, Alvin Krolik, who's a, an yeah. artist, husband of a musician, and a legit talented artist, but he's also a petty criminal. Mm. 
Hmm. And his fateful meeting with this guy, Delta Richard Penny, who is hmm. an ex-cop and soldier um, in El Paso, whose story you tell. And let's take a quick break for our sponsor and come back in and hear this tale of heartbreak. All right, so let's uh, – it's up to you how much of the tale you want to tell. But at sure. least tell us, how did you track down that Alvin Krolik was the guy who walked the lonely street? Yeah, no problem. Um, I started the book from the assumption that everyone was telling the truth. That, that was my basic starting point. If I was to go into it any other way, I would have gone mad, really. So I had to assume that everyone was telling the truth. So I tried to literally track down – all of the interviews that May had given, all of the interviews that Tommy had given and so on, and just try to, to put all the pieces together in some sort of what I call a, a framework of facts to try and see who was doing what, what was doing when, and what she said in this interview and what she said in that interview. And the story was always pretty much the same, by and large, with a couple of extra details here and there, which was that the story was based on a newspaper article from the Miami Herald in which the police were appealing for help because they'd found the body of a suicide victim and there was no evidence as to this man's identity other than a handwritten note which said enigmatically, I walk a lonely street. There were no business cards, no driver's license. Uh, and the police were saying, is your husband missing or is your son missing or your father missing? Help us to identify this man. Um, so I started right from there, from ground zero. And I did what I'm sure millions of people have done over the years, which is I wrote to the Miami Herald and said, are you aware of this? Which clearly they are, because I'm sure they've got a dead letter department from floor to ceiling of people who've asked the same damn question. Uh, can you try and find this newspaper article for me from the summer or the autumn of 1955? And the, the truth is, it's, it's just not there. It's, it's not in the Miami Herald at all. So I took advantage of uh, modern techniques and opened an account with an uh, American company, newspaper archives or something of that nature, and spent weeks searching uh, using various word combinations, uh, looking for any kind of story from 1955, somewhere based around the southern states, which would relate and make sense of this uh, wonderful story that May had been telling for all these years. And eventually, the, um, the, the, the phrase that, that really triggered the search engine was walk a lonely street. And this story came up uh, in two places. It came up in 1953, as you'll note in the book, and it came up again in the summer of 1955. And I have to say, uh, holding my hands up, even though the fact that it came up there in the summer of 1955 with the story, I Walk a Lonely Street, and it involved a dead person um, in the southern states of America, it took me three or four weeks before I realized that this was the actual story. Uh, I've been so used to looking for the idea of a suicide victim. Uh, it didn't occur to me, first of all, that this was the actual story that I was looking for, um, particularly as it didn't feature in the Miami Herald. Uh, it featured in the um, El Paso Herald Post instead. But once I'd then discovered that this must have been the story, because it, it was too much of a coincidence to have that same phrase at the same time. I started backtracking through the life of this man called Alvin Krolik, who had died in August 1955. And uh, as a, a, a wannabe writer, it, it was a dream. 
truly, you know, you 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 couldn't have written a, a, a more dramatic um, life story in, in this sort of situation, uh, and it just fitted in so perfectly with the other themes of the book, which is, you know, the very narrow difference between success and abject failure in the arts, the idea of uh, people breaking up. Uh, it all just made such beautiful, perfect sense. And Arthur Krolik, uh was a fascinating character, good-looking fella, um, had every reason to be successful in life, but whatever he tried just seemed to not work. And uh, I said to someone recently, you know, what, one, one could almost write a, a country and Western song about Alvin Krolik. And someone pointed out that I already mentioned this in the book, and that song is um, Marty, Marty Robbins' um, El Paso, which isn't yes. a direct a direct reference, but there's enough going on in the El Paso story. I'd say when I when I discovered the story, I went very carefully through the, the history of Marty Robbins' El Paso just to see if he did actually, was there a chance that he would have known the real story of Heartbreak Hotel, particularly as he had close connections himself to Colonel Tom Parker. But I think it's just a coincidence. It's just one of those great, great stories. And then when I linked in uh, the actual story, the actual death of of Alvin Krolik when he'd met this astonishing man, you know, it was the, the man who'd never failed in a robbery coming head to head with the man who'd never allowed anyone to rob a single dime from his liquor store, uh, the immovable force and the unstoppable object. It, it was just a, a perfect coming together of of these two people at exactly the right time. Uh, and that, that period in the book, actually, that summer of 55 is, is my favorite part of the book because everything is just happening on a day-to-day basis, July, August, September, October, through that period there. Uh, and, and Krolik is just an amazing, amazing person, really. Um, and, you know, the, the, one of the, the, the key lovely parts of this for me was being able to talk to the daughter of of the man who owned the liquor store where Alvin Krolik met his end, uh, Francis uh, Penny Erickson, as she now is, who's a wonderful woman, immensely proud of her father. And she ended up being the last remaining witness to these events. Um, she was a young girl sitting in the doorway of the shop. Um, she didn't see the events, thankfully, but she was right there in the shop when these events happened. And it was she who amazingly, after months of us talking very friendly on the, on the phone and via Facebook, um, asked me if if I wanted to see the police report that she had uh, locked away in her house, which she'd never mentioned at all during all of my research with her. And that's when she turned up with this astonishing photograph um, of the the crime scene, which I have to say, when she sent it to me, I had to look at that for a long time. And we had a long discussion that weekend about, do you really want me to put this in the book? Because it's extraordinarily personal. And I think more than almost any other event in the writing of this book over 10 years, it was the one where I stopped and thought, these are real people. And I have a duty of care to their stories and to their reputations. And still, when I open the book, as I, as I often do, and, and look to those pictures, that story and, and that picture in particular take my breath away. Absolutely. And, and it's brilliantly told. And 
you know, like you say, when, when you hit that point, summer of 55, that this book is just hitting on all cylinders. There's so many different stories going on and you finally see these players coming together and it's, it's just incredible. And speaking of things coming together, let's hear Elvis's version of Heartbreak Hotel and the way he turned all this blood and all this lead into gold. So lonely, I'll be so lonely, I could die. And that was Elvis and Scotty Moore and the Blue Sky Boys doing Heartbreak Hotel, the hit version we all know and love. And, you know, to me, the, the Krolik and, and Richard Penny stories are so important to include in this because on a show like this, where we talk about musicians who are almost invariably successful, I try to mix in, you know, musicians who are less successful if they have a compelling story or represent something larger, but you have this sort of survivor's bias where you read all these stories about Elvis or the Beatles or Michael Jackson, and it's always poor kids struggling, gifted, has some problems, but the gifts overweigh the problems and they get lucky and they get fame, rich and famous. And you sort of in your mind start to think, Oh, that's that's how it happens for everybody. And when I was a kid, it really impacted me. And oh, I'll be a rock star just like these people. And it, you know, I, I strongly recommend kids not fall for that trap. And when you read the story of somebody like Alvin Krolik, who was gifted and talented, who did have something to contribute, but he just made some bad decisions, and he put himself in a position where he runs into a guy like Delta Richard Penny, who is for lack of a better word, a stone badass who is not letting anybody take, you know, his life or his money, hard earned money. And, you know, both characters are sympathetic. You understand what both of them are due, but you know, the end result is definitely tragedy. And it, it's, um, again, a, 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 an ode to the power of the arts that somebody like Elvis with the help of Mayborn Axon, Tommy Durden and Glenn Reeves and Scotty Moore and, you know, Steve Scholes and everybody else turns this into this art that transforms the world. And so, um, you know, thank you for, for, for bringing that out. And another thing that I learned from this book that I'd never realized before, because I just hadn't done the analysis is Elvis's creative powers. And you talk about, you know, his first song, everybody knows the story or every Elvis fan knows the story of, you know, Elvis has been circling around Sam Phillips for almost, you know, over a year. And Sam mm. Phillips has been trying to figure out what to do with him. And he's introduced him to Scotty Moore and they bring in Bill Black and they're, you know, spending time in the studio trying to make something of Elvis. And it's not until he starts playing Arthur Crudup's, you know, that's all right. Um, that it, you know, lightning strikes and, and lead turns to gold. But you point out it's not a simple cover. Elvis mm. actually apparently constructed his own version of that song from multiple Arthur Crudup songs mm. and mm. does it the same well, way over and over again. Well, when I was, um, when I got to the Elvis part of the book, which is it's pretty much the, the, the middle 300 pages, um, I, I was determined to try and make sure that I was not just working from the legend, the, the, the mythology. Um, no matter how much I embrace the mythology without, within the book, I, I wanted to try and rediscover those early recordings. So I was going through the, the very early recordings, the demos, and, and looking to see where Elvis was taking his inspiration from. You know, you listen to uh, My Happiness, and it's clear he's channeling the Ella Fitzgerald version. He even uses the same vocal modulation in, in one part. Or if you look at um, 
another song, I forget which, um, you can hear that he's not doing so-and-so's version, he's doing the Eddie Fisher version because he uses a little combination of words that only Eddie Fisher uses in his version. So you can track where Elvis is taking his inspiration from. So when I came to That's All Right, um, you know, a song like, like so many of your listeners, I, I know back to front, uh, I then pulled out my version of, of Crudup's That's All Right and put it on and noted that they are obviously similar, but noted also that Elvis was changing words um, throughout the whole song, really. And I wasn't that familiar with, with Crudup's work at this point. I have to tell you, I, I knew the obvious Elvis covers and a couple of other songs. And I just asked myself the question, where do these other lyrics come from? So I decided to bite the bullet, downloaded Crudup's entire body of work, and over a period of about a week, just listened relentlessly to Arthur Crudup. And every time an Elvis-ish phrase appeared in any of his songs, I made a note. And it was then that I began to discover the sort of writer that Crudup was. And the amazing thing about Crudup uh, is that he wrote in a very specific way. He used an old blues technique, whereby, uh, as he was advised uh, by, I think, Tampa Red, uh, if you can't write a song easily, just go to any old blues song, steal the middle verse, and then steal another verse from somewhere else, write a few lines of your own, and there's your song. And Crudup loved the line, that's all right, now, mama. That, that was his, his calling card as a line. Um, and he uses that phrase, he uses that verse in at least three or four of his other songs. In fact, his very first single on RCA Bluebird, If I Get Lucky, uh, it opens with the line, uh, that's a right mama, that's a right for you, that's a right mama. So I went through this very carefully and, and managed to piece together the, the simple fact that Elvis was actually drawing from at least three, but possibly as many as five different Kurup songs uh, throughout his version of That's All Right, the, the, the version that we know and love uh, as released by Phillips in July 1954. And it, it, I thought, okay, well, that's not really a surprise because the, the, the old, old story is that Elvis was improvising, standing in the studio and just improvising off the cuff uh, and was just putting in bits and pieces from various Crudup type songs. So that, that wasn't as much a surprise to begin with. But then I, I went back and listened to the one existing complete outtake that we have that was issued many years ago. And as I'm sitting there listening and making notes again, it occurred to me that Every single word, literally every single word, every conjunction, every and, every if, every but in Presley's rehearsed, rehearsal version, take one, is exactly the same as the finished master, which is when I then asked myself the question, if this guy is improvising this song in the studio, how can he repeat literally word for word, letter for letter, exactly the same improvisation? You know, I, I said to somebody else once, if I asked you to sing, any old favorite song, whatever, Heartbreak Hotel, you'd have heard it so many times, you can sing it word for word, you can sing the inflections, you know exactly how to hold on to notes and drag things out because you've heard that song a million times. So it, it wouldn't be surprising if you could sing the same song twice or three times exactly the same way. But if Elvis is, is improvising, how can he possibly sing the same song literally exactly the same way? And my hypothesis is that he, he couldn't do that. And I take this further, and I refer back to the fact that when Sam was advertising in newspapers, he was very clear on the fact. He said, if you have a song, a new song, a song of your own, and you want me to hear it and record it, 
bring it to me. Now, Elvis wasn't a conventional songwriter. We know that he tried and um, it, it didn't work for him. But he loved Arthur Crudup and he knew the way that Crudup wrote songs. And it's my feeling that Elvis therefore came along in July 1954 with this song pre-written. He'd written his own Arthur Crudup song, which is very similar to That's All Right. But again, Arthur Crudup has many songs that are very similar to That's All Right. And he was simply waiting for his moment, waiting for a point when Sam Phillips was going to say, do you have anything you've written yourself some? Or do you know any blues? Which of course he isn't going to say, because Elvis is white. And this is Memphis in July 1954. And when we get towards the end of that very first session, and Elvis thinks, this is it, my moment's gone. Mr. Phillips is going to tell me to go home. Uh, he brings it out and, and risks embarrassment, risks uh, whatever abuse he may have received as a white boy trying to sing a blues song. So I am absolutely convinced in my own heart that Elvis's creativity demanded that he bring his own song. This was not an accident. Elvis had brought his own song to the Memphis Recording Service on July 5th, 1954. It wasn't an accident. It was a very deliberate, very conscious, artistic decision that he made. That's my theory. And I think you you put your case together very well. There's no way to definitively prove that's what happened. So many of the principles have passed away, but it, it's a strong case and it makes sense and has has the ring of truth to it. And let's hear the last time that Elvis and Scotty Moore ever played Heartbreak Hotel together. This is from the Elvis 1968 TV special, Elvis and Scotty and the gang doing Heartbreak Hotel. And that was Elvis Presley's version of Heartbreak Hotel from the uh, Elvis Comeback 1968 special. And again, you know, Scotty Moore is one of these figures who, on one hand, you could say he was ill-served by Elvis. You know, he's he's summarily dismissed after that uh, TV special, doesn't get to participate in any of the Vegas comebacks or, you know, the 68 recordings or any of that stuff definitely never became a rich man despite his immense cultural contributions but on the other hand without elvis we wouldn't know who scotty moore was in all likelihood mm. so you know it's it's this trade-off and so many guitarists and so many people have been touched by scotty moore's gifts and his work that mm. it's hard to say you know if 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 i had that if i was told you know you're going to be born as scotty moore would you take this deal I don't know. <laughs> I probably would. But no, I agree. There, there are many parts of, of Elvis's career where you think, why, why did you do that? You know, what, how, how difficult would it have been for him to cut in Scotty Moore and Bill and DJ? Um, and you know, it's 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 not a nice answer you come up with. But then, you know, none of us are perfect. None of us know the exact circumstances. But it, it is a sad part of the story when the original Blue Moon Boys. Uh, did not share in Elvis's great good fortune. So, yeah, it's yeah. a trade-off. It's, it's, you know, them's the breaks. And the, the, the last thing I want to get into is you, you structure the book, you root this 
in the history of country music and the, and the business history of country music, really. There's a lot of talk about Ralph Peer and, and his mm. publishing, music publishing, the way he worked with Jimmy Rogers and, and A.P. Carter and, and ended up, you know, Ralph Peer is a salary man making a dollar a year or something, but he's, he's getting all the music <laughs> publishing and, and making his big fortune. Yeah. You know, you mm. talk about uh, Fred Rose and Roy Acuff and their work with Hank Williams. And, you know, the Hank Williams story is a big part of this. And a, you know, a tragic precursor to Elvis in, in many senses, although Hank was this genius songwriter. And you you do tell the blues side of the story or the R&B side of the story. You know, you talk about Sam Phillips recording Ike Turner and, you know, Sam mm. and B.B. King and Sam and Howlin' Wolf and Sam and the Prison Airs. And, and you know, and you tell the story of Elvis's musical origins and, and how he was passionately devoted to that kind of music. And that's what drew his attention to Sam Phillips. But nonetheless, everybody working on Elvis's career was treating it in the context of country music because when Elvis came along, there was no such thing as rock and roll, as a mm. separate business entity. Now, musically, you could say, oh, well, there was rock and roll when Oni Harris and Roy Brown had this, you know, and Ike Turner had this thing perfected by 1950. They just called it rhythm and blues, and it was just seen as black music. But Nobody was going to market Elvis as an R&B singer in 1956. No, no way, no how. It was mm. radical enough to have somebody like Elvis singing this material. So he comes mm. up in the context of country music. What was it or what did you learn about your research in the history of the country music business? What was it that made it possible for somebody to explode out of country and take over the pop world so quickly like that. Had the groundwork been laid or was Elvis just the singular force that inevitably was going to do this no matter what? And if Elvis hadn't come along, no one else ever would have. So that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if there was no Elvis, would there have been the rock and roll explosion? I think one of the points I, I make in the book was that uh, movements need a figurehead, really. Um, and whether that figurehead is responsible for literally everything that happens uh, is is not always clear. And, you know, you, you talk about the 60s and people think of the Beatles. You talk about protest music and people think about Dylan. There were many, many other people involved. Um, and, and certainly Elvis, yeah, as has been established for many years, did not invent rock and roll. Um, nobody invented rock and roll, really. But it, it's just a beautiful coming together. Uh, of, of a whole bunch of people. And I try to give as much deference to the important people. Uh, I'm sure I've missed some people in the book, uh, but uh, as much importance to the likes of Chuck Berry coming through, Little Richard coming through, um, and the people who were there on the fringes already, Buddy Holly, for example, Roy Orbison. Uh, but it's the fact that there's, there's one chapter, I think, uh, and I must stress that each chapter is a page, as you say, it's a vignette. There's a chapter where I talk about how Elvis almost seemed predestined for fame. Uh, a tall boy uh, with immaculate hair, incredible dress sense, who could move like nobody else, had the most amazing voice, a huge depth of knowledge of, of all types of music, and was incredibly handsome. And that, that cannot be underestimated. You know, for the, for the next six or seven years, every record company in America and elsewhere was looking basically not for a guy who could sing and rock up a storm, but for someone who looked like Elvis. You know, you, you see them all, the Fabians, the Cliff Richards, whatever. Uh, and occasionally you get someone who's, who's very good, Ricky Nelson, who, who, for example, looks good and, and sounds good. But Elvis seemed to have it all, really. That, that's the thing. And I think what, what did surprise me when doing the research through country music was 
the incredible speed at which Elvis ascended. I think that's the thing that surprised me most of all. When I looked through other people, uh, Red Foley, who seemed to be in the business for 10 years, Hank Snow, who seemed to be in the business even longer before he was making any kind of success. And the very fact that Elvis came through when he was so young and came through so quickly meant that he was one of the very first occasions when a young person was having their say on the airwaves. Most of the people um, who, who were hitting the airwaves in all types of music, blues, pop, country, classical, were in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s. This was, uh, I'm guessing, because I haven't researched it as, as perhaps well as I should, but must be surely one of the very first occasions in any type of music, in any type of musical history, where such a young person is coming to the fore really, and, and then setting the standard, because everyone really who then comes through, who has something to say, says it in their early 20s from this point onwards. And, and I think Elvis is, is setting the standard there. It just all comes together so beautifully. And Elvis had no other way to come out. You know, the only way he was going to come through was, was through the world of country and Western music, or possibly gospel. And he didn't have, I think, the kind of voice that would work in a gospel quartet, much to his own frustration. But he, he had to come through the world of country music. Actually, uh, for the very first time uh, this week, I've been watching the Ken Burns documentary, Country the country music documentary, which is very good. That's it's, excellent. It's yes. fascin yeah, it's fascinating to watch the, the Elvis and Johnny Cash chapter um, and, and to see that, you know, when, when Elvis becomes famous, at this point, he ceases to be of any interest to the country and Western documentary, uh, whereas Johnny Cash's career is followed all the way through to, uh, well, near enough to his death, I guess, uh, to his redemption at, uh, at American uh, in his late career. But when Elvis becomes famous and when... Uh, his records begin to appear, as you say, on the R&B chart and on the pop chart. His story is no longer of interest to the country and Western people because he's no longer perceived as a country and Western artist. He's taken it somewhere else. He's taken that branch of country and Western music and helped turn it into rock and roll. Um, and... You know, he had no intention of doing that, I don't think. I don't think he sat down and thought, let's invent a whole new branch of music which will change popular culture. But I guess that's what happened. Yeah, pretty much. And Sam Phillips was planning that. And it, it's, you know, I think another thing you do well in the book is you set the scene and you explain the social dynamic that – Elvis, you know, he's playing guitar with guys like the Burnett Brothers, who later become Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio, you know, around the apartment complex in Elvis in Memphis. And yet he's very careful not to lay out his cards that he's also an R&B fan, that he's a black gospel mm. fan. You just didn't do that in those days. Yeah. So the racism was so endemic in Memphis at that point. Mm. And even with somebody like Sam Phillips that he knew would be receptive that's not the card he led with. And like you say, it was a Trump card he pulled out in desperation when the mm. sort of country and Dean Martin style ballads that he uh, had initially wanted to do, you know, just wasn't clicking. So, mm. you know, just. Which is just why. Yeah. Which is why in, in retrospect now, looking back, it, it's, it's so bizarre, you know, that Elvis was tarnished with this. Was he a racist question uh, when the man was in such adoration of black culture uh, and, and love black singers, black musicians. You know, he, um, if ever a man was as far away from racism as it's possible to be, it, it's, it's Elvis Presley. Uh, and that is the great irony of, of his career. Yeah, I, I, 
I, I want to do more research on that. But, you know, the uh, that recently came up when I was doing a hip hop episode with some good friends of mine. And they they knew that mm-hmm. quote, the the scurrilous, slanderous lie, quote, that supposedly originates in Boston, where Elvis had never been, that the only thing a black man, and they didn't use the word black man, could do for me is shine my shoes, et cetera, which mm-hmm. Elvis never said. It's like mm-hmm. nothing Elvis would ever say. And mm-hmm. I suspect that, you know, that was planted in like a second tier magazine mm. for black black folks mm. that was frequently yeah. used by the FBI and other you know negative reactionary forces in American life to plant mm. messages about black artists they wanted to damage or about other people they wanted to damage i suspect that there was you know elvis was already becoming a threat at that point but yeah you're so right i mean this is the man who treat, paid for jackie wilson's medical care at the end of his life yep. yeah there's mm. stories of of him meeting an indigent blues man and and getting a bag of potato chips and turning it into a check and writing the guy a check mm. right there on the spot i mean and, you know mm. somebody like little richard would say thank did say thank god for elvis presley he busted the doors mm. open so i could walk through it after elvis i got on tv and there was no more pat booning little richard you know and there's a reason <laughs> James Brown spent several hours hmm. with Elvis's casket, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh, indeed, Muhammad Ali, you know, describing Elvis as the sweetest man he ever met. Yeah. And, and you know, so yeah, that that's the kind of slander that um, definitely has to be combated because it's just not fair at all to Elvis. And it's so typical of the way we are divided and conquered uh, oh. by the powers that be. So anyway, Tony, you brought up a ton of heavy issues. And you know we've only covered a fraction of the great stuff that's in this book. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's Walk a Lonely Street, Elvis Presley, Country Music, and the True Story of Heartbreak Hotel. And the author is Tony Plews. Tony, it was a treat. And I look forward to your next book, if you do one. <laughs> 10 years away. 10 years away, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with Dave Thompson to discuss his book, Bad Reputation, the unauthorized biography of Joan Jett. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 